Well, uh, good evening and uh, welcome to you all. We're really delighted to have you. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jirjes and I teach the modern Middle East here at the LSE. And it really gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our distinguished uh, speaker tonight, uh, Professor and critic uh, Hamid Labashi uh, from Columbia University. Uh, Professor Dabashi holds one of the most distinguished and one of the oldest chairs, uh, as I, I hope I'm correct, at Columbia University in Iranian studies and comparative uh, literature. I really am not exaggerating if I say that uh, Hamid does not need uh, much introduction. Uh, he has published uh, 25 books, single author, a person whom I don't like. I mean, how can I many of us, 25 books and four edited books, uh, almost 100 articles in some of the most respected, really, uh, journals and newspapers and uh, uh, outlets, media outlets uh, in the world. It's not just about the quantity of his production. I mean, think of the areas on which Hamid Abbashi walks. Uh, Iranian politics, Iranian society, Iranian literature, Iranian cinema, medieval and modern Islam, uh, the question of cinema throughout the world, not just in the Middle East, the question of philosophy of arts. Many of us, I mean, I myself teach the modern Middle East, international relations and political theory, where th this is a very impressive repertoire uh, of ideas and, and uh, uh, areas of studies. Uh, I, I, again, I, I'm not exaggerating to say that he's one of the most renowned international cultural critics in the world. Uh, in addition to being a, a, an award-winning author. His books have been translated to many languages. We don't have the time. I don't want to take time, really, from introducing Hamid so he, he will have more time to flesh out his ideas. Um, and as you know, his talk tonight is uh, Iran, uh, the next war in the Middle East with a question mark. Uh, um, and I, we're looking forward to really uh, listening to what Hamid has to say, not just about the potential for war, uh, in Iran, but also what's happening in Iranian society, what's happening inside uh, uh, Iran uh, itself. Uh, and let me, let me, it's not just a, one of these really exceptional scholars, exceptional uh, mind. I think uh, some of us, some of it, myself, consider myself a student of Hamid. He really has been, as you know, he teaches in the United States. He has spent many, many years in the United States. He's been a voice of sanity. Uh, a voice of justice, uh, a voice of peace in really some of the most difficult moments uh, in the United States. I'm an American myself. That uh, Many things that I myself, I, I could not have said, Hamid has been able to say at the great cost. Uh, and please, for some of you students at the LSE, don't Google Hamid Dabashi. Read his books and articles and make up your mind about his scholarship and his ideas. Uh, and also what's unique about his scholarship, uh, about Hamid Dabashi's scholarship, is really one of the few cultural critics who combines very rich empirical research with what I call nuanced theoretical and conceptual uh, uh, ideas. And that's really what makes his scholarly uh, output extremely unique and extremely critical. Please join me in welcoming Hamid Dabashi to the LSE.
Well, if you had any uh, doubt about firing your PR agent and, and hiring for wars, then uh, there you have it. <laughs> I am extremely honored to be here in LSE. First and foremost, I have to thank my dear friend, Peyman Jafari, uh, who is here sitting. You know, when you get to be my age, you become finickier and finickier about your travels. And if you're lucky, you will have somebody like Peyman Jafari to cater to your finickiness when you want to travel from one side of the pond to another. He has graciously, generously, kindly uh, uh, organized my trip to uh, London, and for which I'm very grateful, equally grateful I am to my dear friend, uh, Professor Fawaz Jirjis for kindly, uh, on behalf of LSE, uh, inviting me to be here with you uh, uh, today. Uh, I'm also mindful of uh, our uh, distinguished late colleague, Fred Holliday, in whose shadow we, uh, we all think and write and, and, uh, and do things uh, on LSE, in LSE and on the, the subject. Uh, your school has been under a very false and uh, an unjust uh, shadow because of uh, political issues, but uh, precisely under those shadows, uh, I'm more than ever honored to be here in LSE in the company of my distinguished colleagues. You have one of the finest institutions of higher learning uh, in the world, particularly in areas of uh, Middle Eastern studies, and these institutions have to be jealously guarded against all sorts of uh, uh, interference by part of governments or a special interest uh, and so forth. We don't have anything more precious than the ind independence of our judgment. And as I have always uh, said, uh, the function of the university is, uh, uh, is first and foremost the cultivation of critical judgment for responsible citizenship in an increasingly difficult uh, circumstances. Now, uh, I have been asked to talk about uh, the, the topic, Iran, the next war in the Middle East, question mark. But I'd like to start first because I am in the company of my colleagues, both present colleagues and, and future colleagues, by first talking about uh, the question of the modes of uh, knowledge production or the analytics of knowledge production uh, today as we face a rapidly changing world. In other words, uh, from what particular analytical framework, from what particular uh, f uh, uh, epistemic framework do we talk today uh, when we talk about the, uh, the Middle East uh, in circumstances that, as I have argued in my book on the Arab Spring, the very term the Middle East is uh, subject to uh, considerable uh, rethinking uh, in a chapter that I call Liberation Geography. That is no longer people from, uh, from Morocco to Syria, from Bahrain to Yemen, including Iran, Turkey, Afghanistan, etc., are in the east of any fictive colonial officer who one day sat in London and decided the fate of the rest of the world is to his east and other people's west. So under those circumstances, when the very foundations of our thinking about this region is being altered by facts on the ground, as it were, we need to be mindful of how is it that we go about and generate knowledge about the Middle East, quote unquote. And in that context, the famous slogan in Tahrir Square, 
الشعب يريد اسقاط النظام people demand the overthrow of the regime this regime I argue stands far more than just changing a figurehead like Hosni uh, Mubarak or uh, or uh, Bashar al-Assad if the case might be or anybody else we're talking about a different kind of calculus political uh, calculus but that regime is also a regime of society uh, in terms of the a new possibility of emergence of a public space in which labor unions, women's rights organizations, student assemblies can have a more effective and powerful and enduring role so that when the euphoria of uh, Tahrir Square is no longer with us, the enduring institutions of civil liberties will continue to be. But also, I read that word regime as in the, as in the sense of regime of knowledge. That, uh, in other words, it is not just the political regime or the social regime, but the, uh, what Foucault called regime de savoir, which is now being uh, reconstituted as we speak. This obviously begins with journalistic, day-to-day -day, uh, information that we get from the region. How do we decipher them? Okay, uh, there's BBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, Al Arabiya, etc. There are many uh, of these news organizations in Arabic, in Persian, in English, French, German, Urdu, Turkish, uh, that generate day-to-day uh, -day ideas and, and information about what is happening on the ground. How do we uh, make up our minds? The fact is that there is no independent, absolutely independent news organization with which we could be 100% in agreement. In fact, if we are in 100% agreement with any news organization, being BBC or CNN or Al Jazeera or anything else, then we have to examine our own thinking that we are in 100% agreement. There are flaws, there are fundamental flaws, there are narrative flaws, there are, there are conceptual uh, uh, flaws in any one of these news organizations. The good thing about that fact is that it gives you as observers agency to be an active participant in deciphering data and in, uh, in uh, putting uh, one news against another news that, for example, if somebody not notices that Al Jazeera is not uh, as forthcoming in covering of Bahrain uprisings, for example, then uh, you can make noise and rise ar uh, write articles and uh, uh, sort of uh, begin to raise alternative sites. One of the most fascinating, I think, uh, news uh, or analysis, news and analysis uh, 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 outlets in the aftermath or immediately in the aftermath of the Arab revolutions is the, the site Al Jadaliya, Bassam Haddad and uh, his colleagues. Uh, uh, the site that they put together in terms of constant, immediate, and spontaneous uh, analysis of, uh, of, of the situation. The other aspect of it is great Arab intellectuals, Azmi Bishara, Fawaz Rabulsi, others who keep thinking and writing along the lines as the Arab revolutions and uh, the, the Iranian Green Movement, etc., are unfolding. This by way of saying that Fortunately or unfortunately, there is no one single source of news that comes to us day to day. Right now, uh, on the case of uh, Syria, as you know, uh, there are fundamental uh, 
discrepancies between what, for example, CNN or BBC uh, or even Al Jazeera reports and alternative reports that come in terms of these atrocities, whether or not Bashar al-Assad's regime is entirely responsible for this or there are other factions, the Saudi, the Qatari uh, sources of uh, financing uh, uprisings. None of this, of course, is to diminish the factual evidence that the Syrian uprising began like all other uprisings peacefully, non-violently, and, and then gradually had become more and more violent. So the first issue as a result that we, that we face is the manner in which we, uh, we uh, uh, decipher the news. The second is uh, the imaginative geography that uh, we ordinarily uh, think about when we talk about uh, the Middle East. They, they, there's a conceptual uh, uh, frame of reference that if we are in LSE in London, and we talk about the Middle East, then we're talking about them. Some, uh, some people are there, and we are here, and this here and there becomes the spatial uh, uh, apparatus of alienation. No longer, I think, especially in London, that you have seen civil unrest, student uprisings. Uh, right now, economic scandal on the, on the model of uh, bank scandal on the model of what we see in, uh, in New York. In other words, from Greek, Labor unrest to uh, uh, Spanish indignato to uh, British student uh, uprisings to uh, uh, Zuccotti Park, the 99% the movement, the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, the world is in uprising. And, and the fact that here in London or in New York you have a square named after Tahrir Square means that there is a different kind of dynamic is uh, in operation. We no longer have a condition in which we assume analytical and spatial distance from them and talk about them. They are perfectly capable of whatever they are to talk about themselves. Uh, many have asked, because I just finished a book on the Arab Spring and before that the book on the Green Movement, uh, how could I as a scholar, I'm supposed to have a spatial and, and temporal distance from this event, could so immediately write about the, uh, the Green Movement and the Arab Spring. And the answer to it, I always say, is that I have written that book, those books, or anything of that sort, as a participant. I am participating in these uh, uprisings, but my way of thinking and joining, uh, whether it's in Tehran saying, where is my vote, or in Cairo saying, uh, people demand the overthrow of the regime, is speaking from my professional uh, uh, a perspective which is as a thinker, as a scholar, and so forth. And I don't care if two years from now or five years from now, any one of my ideas, my thoughts that I have suggested proves to be utterly ridiculous. That's perfectly fine too. People have uh, put uh, far more than the possibility of being kind of ridiculous uh, on the line when they join these uh, sorts of uh, revolutions. The, uh, the third notion that I, in addition to journalistic and conceptual, are interpretative apparatus that we put forward. My, I'm absolutely convinced that the kinds of regimes of knowledge that we have inherited as scholars, thinkers, students of this, uh, these uh, disciplines, are in a process of conceptual transmutation. They are no longer completely valid. Society, history, politics, is, are all ahead of us. What we are witnessing in the Arab world, like all other revolutions, uh, or in, in the streets of uh, Tehran, are ahead of any anticipation. Nobody anticipated 
in the morning of June 13, 2009, that masses of hundreds of thousands of Iranians will put into the, pour into the streets and ask, where is my vote? Nobody, I mean, there has been social unrest in, uh, in the Arab world forever. There has never been a, a moment in the Arab world that the social unrest didn't exist. But the magnitude of the events that the, the uh, suicide of Mohammed Bouaziz uh, uh, generated in Tunisia, then the ripple effect in, uh, in Egypt, and then after that the whole Arab world was, in, uh, was uh, up in, uh, up in uh, uh, revolt, uh, nobody ever anticipated it in those particular sense. But now that has happened is not surprising at all. There, are, there is an expression among the Arabs that books are written in Egypt, printed in Lebanon, and read in Iraq. Iraqis don't like it because they become recipient of the intellectuals. The Lebanese don't write it because they just print. But, but you, get, you, get, you get the idea. This, the most significant aspect of these uprisings across the Arab and the Muslim world is the fact of their transnational disposition, namely the catalytic effect that they have on each other. The reason that Egypt is so important is 90 million population, is the apple of the Arab world, apple of the Arab world's eye. So things that happen in, in Egypt will have radical consequences. And after that, Syria. I am not a bit concerned about Mohammed Morsi or Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the fact of the matter is Egyptians are richer, are more, more uh, enabled by the fact that the remnants of the old regime uh, continue to be present in social uh, scene, that uh, Ahmad Shoghi comes and shares with, with his uh, other Egyptian fellows what his image, what his vision of the future of Egypt is. Instead of like 30, 33 years ago, the functional equivalent of Ahmad Shoghi would have been shot dead on the roof of Mohammed Morsi's residence, Ala Khomeini. So we have changed, the, the political circumstances have, uh, have radically changed. So whatever I say about this uh, question that has been put to me, Iran, the next war in the Middle East, question mark, is in the context of these changing circumstances of our thinking about the region uh, that requires a fundamental categorical reconsideration of where we are and how we generate knowledge. In other words, from the disciplinary perspectives that we have inherited and we practice and we write and we educate and we uh, uh, raise the next generation of scholars, uh, we are in a moment of very serious epistemic uh, uh, creative crisis. And as a result, what we need is what I usually uh, tell my students is a combination of multiple lenses. If you only look at the political scene, you will miss, miss the uh, social scene. If you look at the social scene, only social scene, you need uh, artistic scenes, uh, creative scenes, critical uh, scene. All of these things have to come together, and more and more agency is given to the student by way of manipulating these lenses in order to see more precisely and in a transitional way, rather than issuing a statement of one sort or another. This introduction by way of sharing with you, uh, especially the next generation of, uh, of my colleagues, the younger generation of the scholars who are coming to the fore, uh, to be mindful of this change of uh, modes of knowledge production. Now, as to the specific question that has been put to me, Iran, the next war in the Middle East, question mark, the first thing that I would suggest, let's lift the question mark. The war against Iran has started. The war 
of the 21st century, which is a combination of drone intelligence gathering, assassination of Iranian nuclear scientists, cyber attacks in the form of flame or Olympic game. It's not the Olympic game that you're about to have here. It's a different kind of Olympic game. Uh, aiding and abetting with separatist movements, crippling economic sanctions. Today in New York Times, we had a report that the oil production in Iran from 3.8 million in 2011 has come down to, to, uh, to 2.8 million um, barrel a day in 2012. And right now, Islamic Republic cannot sell more than 1.8 million barrel a day, which means uh, they cannot stop production uh, because they will be damaged to the oil wells. So what they are doing, they are storing the oil off the, uh, the, uh, the shore of Persian Gulf in these ma makeshift tankers in order to see what they are doing with them. Obviously, Russia, Egypt, India, and uh, Brazil, they, they still need, and they are not. The, President Obama has given them a, an exemption. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Iran is under tremendous pressure economically, and the immediate uh, suffering of those economic sanctions is on the Iranian population, 75 billion of them. And, uh, and the... Uh, the combination of all of these, if you put them together, my suggestion is that this is a different kind of warfare. Up until recently, uh, the, uh, the warfare, namely on the model of Afghanistan or on the model of, uh, of Iraq or on the model even of Libya, that is a concerted military strike against infrastructure and uh, so forth. If, if we were waiting for that to happen, that, is, that war has not happened and hopefully will not ever happen. But if we reconceptualize the conception of war that is, uh, that, uh, is a combination of all of these factors, that war has already long since started. It began during the Bush administration and has been intensified uh, uh, under the President Obama. Now, the next question is, but why this war? The obvious, the most evident and the most flaunted answer is the question of nuclear program, Iranian nuclear program. Uh, here we have to be very blunt and very simple. Iran does not have nuclear arm. Iran is a signatory to NPT. All Iran is doing, according to all of these objections, is enrichment of uranium 25% that they might be able potentially to use in the making of a bomb. And the principal accuser who is pointing finger is Israel sitting on hundreds of nuclear warheads. I mean, that's the most simple question that if the United States is, uh, is acting as a cop, as we say in New York, walking into a room with two guys staring each other da down, and one of them has a bazooka in his hand, and the other sort of kind of re reaching for his, uh, for his pocket, first you have to disarm the guy with a the, with the bazooka, rather than, oh, you might be something hiding doesn't quite uh, make sense. And if uh, Ahmadinejad has uttered an idiocy, as many other idiocies, of wiping out uh, Israel from map of the earth, uh, we, I don't get into the Persian translation, that's useless. Uh, uh, the fact of the matter is that Israel has wiped out Palestine, tried its best to wipe out Palestine after map of the earth. Uh, of the earth. To the prime minister, uh, Palestinians don't even exist. 
And when they started to, to bomb Lebanon in July 2006, they said, the warlord said, we're going to bomb them back to the Stone Age. So the fact that Ahmadinejad has uttered an idiocy, and even a more idiocy of questioning uh, the horrors of Holocaust, this don't amount to coming and, and uh, 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 mobilizing a whole movement. And then what in, they say in support of democracy in Iran? Oh, really? Saudi Arabia? God's gift to humanity so far as uh, human rights is concerned. That is the bizarre political combination of United States, Saudi Arabia, and Israel pointing finger at Iran has horrors of its own. It's one of the most repressive regimes. 2009, hundreds of thousands of Iranians put into the streets demanding their civil liberties. And they have been harassed, attacked, tortured, reportedly even raped. So, but Iran is, uh, Islamic re uh, Republic is a repressive regime so far as its own citizens is concerned. But it is a bewildered pussycat when it comes to the, uh, the atrocities in the region. So these are two different factors. You cannot use one factor in order to justify the other. So in my judgment, what I propose, the nuclear issue is a ruse. Now, this ruse has existed since uh, the time of the Bush administration. As we, uh, we he hear in the United States, they used to say, oh, anybody can go to Iraq, but real men go to Tehran. That is, the, uh, the project for 20th, um, uh, the American project 20th century, they were going after Iran from day one. That was the, the, the remapping of the Middle East. And uh, today, uh, I just saw Newt Gingrich shaking hands with Maryam Rajavi as, a, as an alternative. So neither nuclear issue nor solidarity with the, with the democratic uprising in Iran could possibly be uh, a reason for the war or the, the war as, uh, as I describe it, or a potential military strike, it just doesn't make sense with Saudi Arabia, with uh, Israel, and with the United States uh, uh, at the, uh, the helm. So then the question is, but why? Why going to war? Here my proposal is that uh, the concerted effort against the uh, Islamic Republic came to a halt during the Green Movement, because there you saw millions of Iranians pouring into the streets in the context of their own historical con uh, uh, struggle for liberty to demand their civil liberties by the fantastic, beautiful question of uh, Rahman Kojas, where is my vote, which was a rhetorical question and, and is a question that predates Ashaburid uh, Nizam, but dovetails with uh, Ashaburid uh, Nizam. So in many ways, these two movements, in fact, are integral uh, to, uh, to each other. But, and during those times, suddenly uh, President Obama became very particular with the death of Nida or Sultan uh, and, uh, and so forth. But then, in fact, in so many uh, words, they were saying, we wonder about the, the civil rights uprising clock and the nuclear clock. Namely, Iranians were better rush and change the regime, otherwise we're going to change the regime for them. That was the, uh, uh, the, uh, the message. But when the civil rights movement, as I call it, and I still do, in Iran, began to have a different phase between, between June uh, 2009 and February 2010, it went through a fantastic phase, and now it has gone through a different phase. Now you have 
figures very closely allied with the ruling uh, elite, people very closely allied with Ayatollah Khamenei beginning to challenge him. Somebody like Abul Fazl Qadiani has run out a close ally of the ruling regime, one of the founding members of the Islamic Republic, served in jail during the Pahlavi uh, period, has now just run out of metaphor how to describe Ayatollah Khamenei's dictatorship. Pahlavi regime used to be the paramount metaphor of uh, absolutism. But right now, Abul Fazl Qadiani has gone to the Qajar period and compared Khamenei in his absolutism with the Qajar uh, rulers. Muhammad Nurizad, another close ally of uh, Ayatollah Khamenei. So I'm not talking about labor activists. I'm not talking about uh, socialist thinkers or economists like uh, Fayboz Raistana. I'm not talking about legal activists like Nasrin Sutudeh or uh, Nargis Muhammadi. We're talking about people very close to the ruling regime, that the ruling regime is, is imploding from within itself. Ayatollah Muntaziri died. The first foremost theorist of Vilayat uh, al declaring the Islamic Republic neither Islamic nor a republic, regretting that he had actually been one of the founding uh, theorists of the, the issue of Wilayat uh, al and of the Islamic Republic. So in no stretch of imagination has the democratic uprising in Iran disappeared, but has gone through its own phase. When the uh, uprising in Syria uh, started, many Iranians were wondering, so how come Syrians can endure so many killings and continue with their struggles, but uh, Iranians did not, I mean, altogether maybe 100 people were, were killed in the course of the demonstrations, uh, but they went back to their houses. And the answer is very happy. No two country is exactly identical. Iranians had a revolution 30 years ago, went through hell, and they ended up with this uh, horrid uh, uh, theocratic uh, state. And they, as a result, they work differently. They think differently. They behave socially differently. And the, the, the other aspect of it is, is that they have a catalytic effect on each other, despite the fact that Iran is not a part of the Arab world. And the catalytic effect that Al Jazeera can have on the Arab world for good or for better, does not have on the Iranian world. I mean, if, look at, if you think back to January, February, when the Egyptian revolution was happening, there were huge screens of Al Jazeera in Tahrir Square. People could actually watch themselves in, engage in the revolution. Uh, but you didn't have anything of that sort in the course of the Iranian uprisings. Instead, you had these uh, flickering images taken by these iPhones as they were running away from uh, the, the security police, and that posited an entirely different aesthetics of, uh, of uh, democratic uprisings rather than the huge screens in Tahrir Square and people are watching themselves. So the Green Movement has not disappeared. It has gone through a mature, different phase. It has exposed those who were calling for more economic sanctions on Iran, people who were writing openly to President Obama asking for a military strike on Iran. It has exposed those who have argued and are on the record for having said that there are more traffic casualties in Iran than a potential military strike in Iran. So they are for military strike against Iran. It has exposed who say there is no more national sovereignty, that there is no imperialism. So the slow motion, what appears to be the slow motion of this phase of a democratic uprising in Iran is a blessing, is a wonderful thing. If that is the case, then the question is why the warmongering uh, against, uh, against Iran? 
My response is very simple. The Arab Spring. The Arab Spring. Uh, the Arab Spring took everybody by surprise, including Arabs. Nobody was expecting this to happen. The uh, conspiratorial theories that CIA imagined this and the Americans are doing this, just I hope it will give you as much rashes as they give uh, uh, of me. No revolution has ever been predicted. Revolutions are not predicted. Professional revolution, this is Hannah Arendt. Precious words of Hannah Arendt in, in her fantastic book on revolution, comparing the French and, and American revolutions. Professional revolutionaries come forward to take advantage of the revolutionary uprisings. They have not been part of the revolutionary uprisings. What brings the three forces of Saudi Arabia, Israel, and United States together is an attempt to, uh, to uh, micromanage or control the consequences of the Arab Spring. Uh, Israel, this is God-given for, for uh, Israel because it can uh, postpone even further the question of Palestine. Why is that the case, I propose? Israel, it is in the political DNA of Israel not to know how to deal with democracies in the region. It is in the political DNA to deal with Arab potentates. It's much easier to deal with uh, Hosni Mubarak or with uh, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh than with the open-ended, fabulously chaotic condition of democracy. It's very difficult. In one moment of, of, of uh, revelation, uh, Foreign Minister Lieberman said in so many words that my fear is not from Iran, my fear is from Egypt. There is no military uh, fear from Egypt. There is a democratic fear from uh, uh, Egypt. How do we know what Mohammed Morsi's position on the peace treaty would be? We have every indication, so far as the military is concerned, that the position of Mohammed Morsi is going to be not that different from so far as Israel, at least in the short term. But that will have a catalytic effect on the position of Muslim Brotherhood inside, uh, inside Egypt, in terms of the rhetoric of the last 30 years, and what they're going to do vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian question. That's uh, number one. So Iran creates a condition of beating the drum of war, and as a result, diverting attention from the real issue, namely the issue of the Palestine, and the issue of the uh, one state, two state, whatever state solution you may consider. Saudi Arabia is more petrified about this unfolding of these revolutions than anybody else. They are under the illusion that by helping the Salafis or the Muslim Brotherhood, they can control it. They think by arming the, uh, the uprising in Syria, they're going to be in charge of the consequences of, uh, of, uh, of the aftermath of, uh, uh, of the events in Syria. But as I said in one of the most recent pieces I wrote for, uh, uh, for Al Jazeera, right now, both on the left and the right, they think that if they control the power, those who are in power, regimes, uh, Assad's regime, or those who want to come to power, then the situation in Syria is under control. It is not under control, I propose, for the simple reason that the cat, the proverbial cat of civil rights and civil society is out of the bag. It is impossible to imagine Syrians, Egyptians, Bahrainis, Iranians, Iraqis, to go back into that condition of fear that they will be ruled by one regime or another regime. Public space is taking shape. 
proverbial میدان آزادی این ایران or تحریر square they both mean the same thing freedom square are becoming part and integral to our critical thinking about the region but it is imperative for us to think not along a sentimental view of a, what we call in sociology false Gemeinschaft, of a momentary euphoria that is generated in, in Tahrir Square, oh, how splendid is it that Egyptians went and, and swept and, 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 and uh, painted and, and cleaned, but the systematic transmutation of spirit of Tahrir Square into the formation of voluntary associations. First and foremost, labor, independent labor organizations, Second, because if you leave men to form labor organizations, they become misogynistic. There is the natural thing. Women's rights organizations. And third, because it has to become intergenerational student assemblies. Three formative aspects of labor organizations, women's rights organizations, and student assemblies would translate the euphoria the transitory euphoria of Tahrir Square or Medan Azadi systematically, gradually into uh, enduring institutions of democracy. I give you two examples to corroborate my suggestion. Right now, uh, the, the repressive apparatus of the Islamic Republic has successfully uh, 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 prevented any more street uh, demonstrations. Why is it that they systematically attack any attempt at the formation of independent labor union. As of last week, they raided a house in, which, in Karaj in which some labor activists had got together to form a, a labor union. They are far more afraid of independent labor union because they can bring, seven million is the, is the labor force in Iran times four, habitually with times four, the number of uh, a family of a laborer is 24, uh, 24, uh, 28 million. Second example. A group of Egyptian revolutionary delegation had come to uh, Columbia, my university, recently, and I was sharing with them precisely this, this urge, this necessity of the formation of labor unions, women's rights organizations, student assemblies. One of them said, you know, what you say is very interesting, because, because the Muslim Brotherhood, at the time, the question was the constitution of, uh, the, the next constitution of, uh, of Egypt, at which time, the first round of parliamentary election, the Muslim brother who was in control of the, uh, of the parliament, and they were afraid that in drafting of the constitution, they were drafted in a way that their civil liberties would not be honored. To which my position is, you don't wait as civil society on the public space for the mercy and generosity and good heart of the Muslim brotherhood to come and give you your civil liberties. You demand and you exact your civil liberties by formation of voluntary associations. To which one of them said, you know that Muslim brotherhoods they tell us they're far more afraid of labor unions than they are of liberal ideologies and liberty. So all you liberals care are for drinks and for short skirts. You don't care about anything else. Nothing wrong with either. But, uh, <laughs> but the point is that what you have is, is the necessity of the great wisdom, great wisdom of what is happening on the public space. And on the question of public space, uh, my position is, uh, uh, as we say in the Islamic philosophy, manzalatun bainil manzalatain is a, is a space within the uh, station within two stations. I'm neither completely oh gung-ho that everything is, if, unless it is on your Facebook, it doesn't exist, nor am I antiquarian and I say, no, you really, really old-fashioned uh, uh, community activism and so forth. 
In other words, if you look at the issue of public space through the, the lens of a combination of Hannah Arendt on revolution and Georg Zimmel's web of group affiliation, uh, social networking becomes yet another, ought to be yet another web of group affiliation, not a substitute for group, group affiliation. So if through, the web, uh, through uh, Facebook or Twitter you can mobilize uh, a, a gathering in Tahrir Square, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Consider the historical fact that Muslim Brotherhood could instantly mobilize uh, demonstrations in Tahrir Square by virtue of the network of mosques that they, can, that they have, and they can immediately bring hundreds of thousands to Tahrir Square. How about uh, people like Wa'il Ghunaim or other young generations of the Egyptians who don't frequent the mosque? And I will talk about the mosque in a, in a minute. Their mosque, as quote-unquote, as it were, is their Facebook page. And through their Facebook page, they can mobilize, organize systematically for, for participation. The fact that the Nasserite socialists could bring 20% of the vote uh, in, in the last presidential election is absolutely extraordinary. And again, I ask you to compare it with the mass murder of thousands of Iranian leftists in the presence of uh, Islamic Republic in the 1980s, particularly 1986. But there is a whole generation of Egyptian left, secular left, which is out in the streets mobilizing, organizing, and, and uh, being uh, active. So that public space, in my judgment, remains the key factor. Now, going back to the question of, uh, question of war, it is that, that reality, the fact that revolutions are in this particular revolution that is happening, fortunately are no longer charismatic. We're no longer waiting for a Nehru. We're no longer waiting for Gamal Abdul Nasser. And thank God, we're no longer waiting for uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. This is, these revolutions are not on the model of epics, as I argue in my, these two books, but on the model of Bakhtinian novel, that characters have autonomy. You don't know what's happening in the next page. And that's good. That I develop in the last chapter of the book as the difference between total revolution and an open-ended revolution. And I propose and articulate the idea of open-ended revolution. I had lunch today with a colleague at SOAS and a, and a distinguished British journalist, and he was wondering how I could write a book about the Arab Spring. Did I not worry about my uh, academic reputation? <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the things that I said is, well, I have plotted enough ideas in there to play with. One of them is this idea of open-ended revolution. That will, uh, will keep many of us uh, busy uh, for, for uh, uh, years to come. So there is a whole notion of revolution that is being uh, changed, whether it is in Iran or why is it that uh, a filmmaker, Jafar Panahi, is in prison? Why? I mean, can you imagine a, a film? What can a filmmaker do? Why are they so afraid of these uh, ideas? And then, how can you in, in, in imprison a filmmaker? As soon as a 20-year ban from filmmaking on Jafar Panahi, and six years of jail is imposed on him, he makes a film by, by, his, uh, by his phone. But because he can't make a film, he calls his film, this is not a film. <laughs> and the film is now all over the world being watched. And in which, through his creative imagination and brilliance, he actually tells whatever he wants to say.
And precisely because he's jailed, there are more retrospective on his fantastic, socially responsible, committed films that he has made over the last 20 years or 15 years, beginning with White Balloon, ending with, uh, with Offside, I think. I think. Are mo people are watching it more than ever. People more, know more about Jafar Panahi today than they did before. It's impossible to, uh, to contain a nation of uh, 70 million. Precisely for that reason, you have a combination of interest in the Arab world and in Iran and the rest of the region for uh, uh, conservative, I mean, right now there is a difference, between, there is no difference between Obama, and Obama is in, fa in fact worse than the, uh, the right wing of uh, Obama insofar as our civil liberties are concerned. The, uh, the uh, National Authori Authorization Act that was passed on January 1st, ostensibly against Iran, is in fact corroborates and consolidates the question of preemptive, indefinite incarcerations of American citizens. And uh, also the question of habeas corpus is completely out of the window. So we are completely at the mercy of the, sort of what Agamben said, said, naked. We're completely naked vis-a-vis -vis the state. Thank God that uh, Julian Assange uh, is, is just reverting, the, uh, reversing the relationship by virtue of we can, for the first time, I mean, historically, the acts of state were supposed to be transparent, transparent and the lives of citizens were supposed to be uh, 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 private. But through all sorts of surveillance mechanisms, our lives are subject to constant surveillance, but they could say whatever they want to say in secret. But WikiLeaks has reversed that relationship. Now we can eavesdrop how Hillary Clinton talks. Now, they occasionally ask me, don't you worry that they will read your mails or listen to your phone calls or, or follow you on your Facebook? I said, absolutely not. I hope they listen to what I say and take notes and do as I say, would be a better word. So I don't care. So, number one, that war has already started. Number two, the reason for it is diversionary tactic to bring back the condition to status quo ante, okay, to how things were, now how things can be. Third, creation of the state of war. State of war, as I wrote in an essay for Al-Ahram, five, six years ago, in fact, more beneficial, both to, uh, at this stage of Obama administration, that uh, he is in a presidential election year, so he doesn't really want to engage in a new war when he came to office uh, opposing Iraqi war, and it certainly is to the benefit of the Islamic Republic, first of all, all its economic woes, it blames on the United States, or quote-unquote, the enemy, the economic condition in Iran was so dire that the uh, presidency of Ahmadinejad began what they called the, uh, the, the cutting of uh, governmental subsidies, but it is now so bad and the poverty line is, uh, the, the uh, uh, income below the poverty line is so intensified that they have just canceled the second round of the cutting of the, uh, of the governmental uh, subsidies. Uh, but in terms of the state of war that has been generated, obviously nobody dares to say anything against the absence of civil liberties because they will immediately be charged with collaboration with the enemy and that's the, uh, that's the end of the argument. So the state of war remains to be beneficial. Now, let me just conclude and hopefully we'll, we'll start the conversation by saying uh, what should be uh, our position vis-a-vis -vis this situation. Mr. John Snow, distinguished 
British journalist, recent, recently gave a talk in Chatham House, uh, in which very passionately uh, Mr. Snow argues for engagement, engagement, engagement with Iran. And he, in fact, in a moment of, uh, of uh, uh, rhetoric, he encourages the British to go to Esfahan, quote unquote, because it's the Florence of the East. Uh, at which moment I thought of my late colleague Edward Said, who is turning in his grave right now uh, in, the, in, the, in the mountains of uh, Lebanon. Uh, the thing is, so what should be our position vis-a-vis -vis John Snow's uh, argument, very passionately, against war? Should we say, okay, no to war, engagement, which means normalization of relationship with Islamic Republic, right? Or should we say, no, no normalization of relationship with Islamic Republic, which means continuing with the state of war, continuing with crippling sanctions, continuing with the possibility of even a military strike. The giveaway is a moment when Mr. John Snow says, we need Iran in Syria. We need Iran in Afghanistan. We need Iran in Iraq. At which moment I wonder if I am included in that we. Do I need Iran in Afghanistan? I don't even want United, UK to be in Afghanistan, let alone Iran help UK to be in Afghanistan. Do I need Iran to help them, the NATO, uh, United States, to be in Iraq? I don't want even them to be in Iraq. Iraq has to be given back to the Iraqis, let alone Iran helping them. So obviously, I am not part of that we. So if I am not that we, if this we, in this we, we have to include 75 million Iranians who don't want to be starved to death, who don't want to be subject to military strike, but they also want their civil liberties, peaceful, non-violent, like all other movements that have been generated in, in the region, where should our stand be? Here, if we include the 75 million Iranians in this we, I will give you two extremities. One extremity are those Iranians who say more economic sanctions. This regime has to be crippled. Yes, Iranians have to give some cost, one of them said recently, driving his SUV in uh, Los Angeles, the belly is so big. No offense, just uh, describing. <laughs> that couldn't uh, think. Iranians have to pay a cost for the cause of democracy, said the man while in LA. There is no, uh, people talk about, well, what about national sovereignty? Oh, national sovereignty is a modernist construction. In postmodern thinking, national sovereignty doesn't exist. What about imperialism? Oh, is it you old lefties? I'm so happy to be in the company of old lefties as of tomorrow in Marxist festival, bless their soul. Uh, uh, you, you keep talking about imperialism. Imperialism doesn't exist. So imperialism doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. National sovereignty doesn't exist. Iranians have to pay a cost uh, for the cause of democracy so this man can go back and become president and uh, so forth. That's one extremity. As I said, one of them wrote an article and said there is more 
casualty from traffics in Iran than a possibility of a military strike, uh, we, should, we should accept it. The other extremity on the other side is, oh, let's normalize. No, no economic sanctions, no thing, Islamic Republic, oh, okay, there might be some people have been uh, harassed or jailed, etc. But comparison in the region, Islamic Republic is splendidly well. Not even comparison, it is a wonderful democracy and we should all shake hands, be happy and go home. What about those masses of millions of people who poured in the street? Oh, they were deluded, they were all bourgeois, upper Tehran, uh, with all these hairdos and blonde hairs and uh, eyeglasses and so forth. Uh, they don't count. Bless you. So, if you put these two extremities aside, where should a sensible, reasonable position of a person be vis-à-vis -vis this, this question? Here, uh, it all depends how we read the most recent democratic uprising in, the, in, in Iran, namely the Green Movement. Did you consider it a revolution? that or did you consider it as I did a civil rights movement non-violent civil rights movement I have been severely criticized I have been called the opiate of the revolutionaries oh Dabashi the opiate of the revolutionaries because I said this is a non-violent movement there were those who were for violence but I was here in this very city waiting for them to finish what they were smoking and and lead a platoon a la, a la Che Guevara in the Sierra Maestra towards, in mountains of Kurdistan towards Tehran, then I would conclude, oh yes, there is a violent aspect. But I was waiting and waiting for them to finish what they were smoking and go. But apparently they have a splendid time doing what they were doing here in London. No violent, uh, uh, viable violent aspect to that civil rights movement was ever evident. It doesn't mean that this regime doesn't deserve to be violently overthrown. It simply means society, in my reading, as I read this movement, I didn't see any violent component to it. I saw it as demanding and trying to exact its civil liberties occupation of the public space, transformation of those, uh, that public space into voluntary association, so that society begins to demand and exact its civil liberties, not changing of the You can change the item of Evelayat al in the Constitution right now and continue with the repressive regime that exists. That is not the point. The Constitution of the Islamic Republic from its A to Z is flawed is a categorical distortion of Iranian political, multifaceted Iranian political culture. For 33 years, Islamic Republic has been trying to swallow the multifaceted Iranian political culture through the, through the throat of Islamism and, and so forth. It can't swallow it. This thick uh, 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 rope of Islamic over the thin neck of Republic doesn't work. You just have to republic, let the republic go for, Muslim, for Iranians to become Muslim if they so choose, in whatever terms they choose. That's the only way. It can continue with a repressive regime as we have it forever. But that is something for Iranians to decide in whatever terms they decide, and not for us in Pentagon and, and uh, uh, State Department and so forth to, uh, to decide. So, where we stand vis-a-vis -vis those two options, yes, engagement, engagement, we need United, uh, Iran for Iraq, or, oh no, attack and let, let it go, depends how we conceptualize this particular phase 
of Iran towards civil liberties. Right now, Iran is negotiating in, uh, in Baghdad and in Istanbul and in Moscow from a very weak position because the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, they know for a fact that Iran is not representing 75 million human beings. Imagine a condition, instead of closing down the Strait of Hormuz, opening up political prisons for the opposition to come out, for Musavi to come out, for uh, all other political prisoners to come out and call for a national demonstration against war. All Iranians, whether they are pro-regime pro or against regime, this green movement, as, as our children, the people now, even they have sensitivity towards the color green. The only reason we call it green, our children, young children, they put a green bandana and they went off to the streets. If they had red, we'll call it red. There's nothing uh, fetishized about the color uh, green. Is, uh, that, that's the strength. 75 million human beings are denied the possibility. Right now, they have just manufactured a poll that 63% of Iranians are for suspension of, uh, uh, of enrichment of uh, uranium under uh, 20%. I mean, they can manufacture anything they want. Uh, perhaps by way of beginning a negotiations or settlement with the United States. But the fact of the matter, I, as one environmentalist, I am opposed to any kind of nuclear anything. Look at Chernobyl. Look at uh, Three Mile Island. Look at the horrors of, in, in Japan. These are, uh, I'm for biofuel. I'm for sun energy. You know, uh, hemp. I'm for, uh, you know, non-marijuana, hemp. <laughs> you can't tell the difference. At any rate, the point is, but Iranians lack that public space in which they can negotiate and discuss what are the benefits and the faults of a nuclear program. They don't have it. So instead of negotiating with Ashton and others behind a closed door, they need to, close, to negotiate with their own people to generate a collective national will to resist. United States, uh, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia are or Israel is not even a signatory to NPT. What are you talking about? But the reason that Israel can talk that language is they know they're negotiating with Iran from a position of weakness. It's not a national representative. If there was a, a national demonstration, all political prisoners out, freedom of the press, open discussion of the nuclear energy, National demonstration across millions of Iranians will put, put out in the streets for nothing more than peace, anti-war, against, uh, against uh, crippling economic sanctions. Would Israel dare to do what they are doing now? Or Obama, the recipient of the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, to come and boast in front of APAC? Oh, wow, we are imposing uh, uh, economic sanctions on Iran? Half a million kids were killed in Iraq because of uh, economic sanctions. Malnutrition and absence of, uh, 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 of uh, medicine. Multiply that by, by population of 75 million. How many, uh, uh, and then Secretary, then Secretary of State Albright said, oh yeah, it's unfortunate, but it's worth it. That half a million Iraqi kids were perished. So, from a very weak political positions. They know, they think that they have to make wheeling and dealing in uh, Moscow and in, in Baghdad and in Syria in order to uh, think. And uh, crippling economic sanctions is a very dire circumstance for Iran as a people, Iran as a nation. So we come down all the way to the point of 
in the absence of civil liberties, if these states, whether it is Bashar al-Assad, Syria, or Khomeini's Iran, are reduced to the machinations of the, of the intelligence, security, and military apparatus that rules over uh, Iran or a country like Iran or Syria, millions of the citizens are disinherited. The good news, the fantastic news, is that whether it's called Green Movement or the Arab Spring or the Indignato or the 99%, people, if you excuse me one more minute of last, don't take shit anymore. They are out. They are fighting. They are asking. They are demanding uh, explanations. Each one of these countries goes in a different phase of protest and demonstrations. But ultimately, the fact remains that, that the, all the machinations, they keep saying, oh, this uh, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the Egyptian Revolution, I mean, my, my friends, they, they sold French, uh, uh, Egyptian Revolution months ago. That this is all the army. Well, the ar if the army had its way, Hosni Mubarak would be in power right now, right? If army had its way, Omar Suleiman would be in power right now. If army had its way, Ahmad Shoghi would be the president. The fact that the Egyptian army has to deal with the Muslim Brotherhood president shows that they are not completely calling the shots. That people in the streets have a force, have a political force. And that Muslim Brotherhood now has to rule, has to make decision. What will there be the position in Sharm el-Sheikh when European tourists go with their bikinis? They have to make these fundamental decisions in the course of the next whatever number of years. And these are good. Any face-off between the army and the Muslim Brotherhood is good for the Egyptians. The next coalition would be more, uh, more powerful. That's why I call it uh, open-ended. Iran is integral to this movement. It is not only the machinations of the United States, Israel, they, they, or Saudi Arabia. They project, right now Saudi Arabia is pumping more oil in order to suffocate Iran. They're pumping more oil and they think that they will, they will micromanage these uh, uh, uprisings. But hey, bless Saudi women, they want to drive. <laughs> and they will drive. And uh, uh, Kuwaitis in the parliament, uh, uh, Saudis driving th th their cars. These are minutiae of a building of a future in which they and the rest of the world would be much better off. Thank you for your patience. provocative uh, presentation. We have about half an hour, so we're going to take uh, several rounds of questions, four at a time. And please, please, uh, I mean, no uh, commentaries, very specific questions. Please. Yes. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to listen to you, uh, Professor Dabashi. Uh, my name is Karabekir Akkoyunlu uh, from uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and I would like to ask you of, um, very quickly, um, and I think I suspect what um, generally your answer will sound like, but uh, Turkey's, and especially just in development parties, a position and role in all of this, um, in the Arab Spring and especially vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. Thank, Thank you. you. Please.
Thank you, Mr. Dabashi. Uh, I come from your hometown, uh, <laughs> so directly. Uh, I wanted to ask. <laughs> I wanted to ask about uh, a recent issue in Iran. It's not directly connected to your topic. I want to ask about uh, the situation of Afghans in Iran right now. Why I'm going to ask this? Because it's not comment. Uh, Please. <laughs> because you talked about uh, nationalism in Iran and the things going to happen, and uh, and I think another thread of nationalism is now happening in Iran, which has which uh, has some other desires and imagine something else. So, uh, please talk about that. Thanks. Thank you. The question next to you. the gentleman next to you, please. Thank you. Uh, Matthew McCaskey from King's College London. Um, what, in your opinion, is the future of the, what you call civil liberties movement in the face of uh, ever-increasing and reinforcing presence of the revo revolutionary guard corps in both political, civil, and business life in Iran? One final question, please, on this side. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your uh, very interesting talk. Um, i just like to ask you, you, the conclusion to your talk in terms of um, what, in terms of, um, uh, you know, what kind of engagement, you know, the West uh, uh, plus Israel and Saudi Arabia can have. I mean, you know, the, um, my father just got back from Esfahan and while he could deal with losing a few pounds, he's certainly not your corpulent LA Irani driver. And, um, you know, his feeling is that, you know, something has to be done. The repression of the green movement was so strict that um, people, are, you know, for very good reason, are, are frightened to do anything. Do you, you know, do you expect, you know, the West to do nothing, um, you know, to accelerate that form of change? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay, let me uh, uh, take the questions uh, reverse, uh, and I will be as brief as possible so we have more talk. The question of what the West can do, first of all, uh, I don't know where the West is. I live in Harlem, so... Uh, the West uh, is an illusion. Uh, but your question, namely what the British can do, okay, uh, apropos your father uh, coming from Isfahan, uh, British government, absolutely nothing. British society, labor unions, women's rights organizations, student assemblies, a lot. If there is a liaison between LSE and Tehran University, uh, exchange of students, faculty, uh, information, conferences, fantastic. Women's rights organizations here in UK, they can collaborate with their colleagues in, 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 in Iran. In, um, the magnificent uh, one million uh, signature campaign, they can help them. They can invite them for conferences. They can exchange literature. Labor unions, they can be extremely important in uh, becoming a voice for repressed labor unions in, inside Iran. So my suggestion is instead of talking about the West, which is an abstraction and usually is reduced to governmental forces, which means what the governments can do. Weber said, Politics is monopoly of physical violence. The only thing that the states can do is violence. I'm uh, against violence. So the states do nothing. Civil society, in the form of this uh, voluntary association, everything, everything they, they can do. Uh, the question uh, apropos what will happen to the civil rights movement in face of the increasing power, your, your assessment is absolutely uh, correct, is that that repression from within is, is crumbling. 
and the civil uh, rights movement is assuming fuller bodies. It's becoming narratively more powerful, institutionally more powerful. The, the bifurcation between Iranians in and out of their country, they're beginning to uh, uh, forge a common language of what exactly civil liberty means. It is a long uh, a process, no question about that. But the condition of war and crippling sanction I mean, at one moment you say, well, this uh, green movement was a bourgeois thing, but the bourgeois thing right now, we have a massive in, uh, 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 poverty is being just sort of going, running amok, which means the elimination, as many economists in Iran have said, elimination of the middle class. And if that were to happen, there is no possibility of a civil uh, formation of a bourgeois civil uh, uh, public space in the absence of the bourgeoisie. How can you uh, generate that? So the danger that the pastoral are increasingly taking the, 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 the economic aspect, financial aspect, etc., dovetails with the, the fact that you need uh, open space of the bourgeoisie to define the public space in a way that they can exercise uh, their rights. So I don't. Uh, deny or uh, uh, underestimate your assessment of how Pastor, in fact, the entire apparatus of Islamic Republic become, is becoming what Harold Laswell called uh, a garrison state, very much a garrison state, with all the spikes out of the porcupine because they are in, uh, uh, in a defensive mode. The, the less that threat of uh, war, the more the possibilities. Remember that after Musavi was arrested and he was no longer giving talks, he became a national figure. He, that is, the Green Movement gave rise to its own thinkers and its own leaders, precisely because he, could, he, could, he said whatever he had to say, and then he became a silent. And precisely for that reason, when Khamenei went, uh, went and voted in the last parliamentary election, he, became, he was scandalized by, uh, by everybody, which means the antenna of the society are alert to what is uh, good. Then when you have people like Sarhang Alayi, the top-ranking uh, people in Pasdaran beginning to criticize and compare uh, the ruling regime with, uh, with the previous regime, I think these are good uh, signs. The Afghans are absolutely horrid, absolutely horrid. Again, is one of the asp uh, uh, Iranian racism against Afghans, against Arabs, which is being replicated. When, when the repression of, uh, of the Green Movement in Iran started, they said, oh, all of these uh, things, they come from Lebanon. The, uh, they, uh, they, look, they look Arabs. Now, you are from my hometown. I mean, they, what they mean by Arabs in the south, because we have darker complexion, they call us Arabs, as if it's a, it's a curse or it's a thing. So, uh, uh, and then, first of all, if you go to the Dahia neighborhood in, uh, in Lebanon, that's an occupied territory by Iranian uh, pastoral. I mean, nobody speak, uh, scarce speaks uh, Arabic in Dahia neighborhood. They all speak uh, Persian. So, that's number one. But then, cut to Libya, when the Libyan uprising began, say, so, oh, all these are mercenary Africans. That is, they, they never want to assume responsibility that these are their own people doing what, whatever it is they're doing. Most recently, the case of racism against Af Afghans is absolutely horrid, whether it is in Shiraz or in the north that they cannot buy things or they cannot go to parks, uh, etc. But again, consider the right side of it. Right now, we have a very healthy discussion about this horrid Iranian racism. You follow? Against Afghans, against uh, Arabs, against Indians, against Iranians, they, they think that they are this pure Iranian nonsense you know, Cyrus the Great came and then everything was uh, hunky-dory. That is, <laughs> that is uh, the, the thing. You see, our culture, our civilization is blessed 
is blessed by so many uh, various cultures, especially in the South that you and I come from. We have African influences, we have South Asian influences, we have Arab influences, and we have Iranian uh, influences. And because of all of which we're richer people, we're happier people. This is what Iran has always been, whether it has been at the seat of empire or throughout history or at the periphery of other empires. But the, we can talk about these facts and, and prove uh, uh, facts and figures that Afghans are our brothers and sisters, okay, by beginning to question all of this Shahnameh national epic. What national epic? An Afghan and a Tajik has equal right on Shahnameh. How could somebody from Tashkent or somebody from, ba from Harad have less, uh, have less uh, claim on Shahnameh than I in Ahwaz? Um, how, could, how could that be? So you have to rethink our historical imagination in which these cultures are multi-ethnic, multinational, and we are more blessed by it. So again, despite the fact that the pressures are on Afghan refugees, two millions of them in the aftermath of the Soviet invasion, the good part of it is that these sort of old wounds are beginning to come out and we can openly talk and, and address them. I mean, my wife and I have been, uh, especially she has been on the forefront of this ghastly Haji Firuz business of, uh, of a blackface uh, thing in, uh, in the Nowruz party. It, it doesn't, Nowruz is a beautiful celebration of uh, spring, we love it, but like everything else has aspects that needs to be reconsidered, such as the blackface. In the streets of New York, you see blackface Haji Firuz, and then with the history of blackface in American cinema and American theater, I mean, people are horrified. And when you say something about that, then, oh, you don't love Iran, and then you begin to receive, as I recently did, by these people who don't even dare to write their own names and, and threaten me with my life with names like Irania Ariai. I mean, uh, <laughs> what ridiculous, and they think I'll be as scared of, uh, of uh, Irania Ariai, uh, who doesn't have a dare to call himself Muhammad Abdullah, whatever his name is. <laughs> Of, uh, of, uh, of theoretics. So these are good signs. These are fantastic signs. Listen, my first name is Arabic. My last name is Indian. It's Sanskrit. I come from the southern part of Iran. My mother was a, was a practicing pious Shi. My father was a devout Nasserite socialist. And they have a splendid time together. Three sons didn't do bad. Uh, so, uh, so these are facts of our life that need to come out and be articulated. Position of Turkey is fantastic. In many ways, Turkey is a model for what is happening, but when it comes to Kurdistan, when it comes to the question of Armenian uh, genocide, unless and until, I mean, the fact that recently at least Kurdish is allowed to be taught in, uh, in uh, uh, Turkish, uh, in Turkey, in high schools, is a fantastic step forward. But is not enough. There, are, there is more that needs to be done. Many people said that Turkey will become a model of the Arab Spring, and my, my position was, well, maybe Arab Spring becomes a model for, for Turkey. I mean, also, Turkey is being cured of this uh, European uh, business uh, part of it. They are part of the Muslim world. They were the last fantastic Muslim empire that, that existed, with all the flaws of the Ottoman Empire. So the fact that uh, Erdogan and uh, Gül, etc., are now looking towards us, towards Asia. Pankaj Mishra just finished writing a brilliant, brilliant book about, uh, about Asia. Egypt, I think, it, it has to look in, uh, learn from India, learn from China. We don't want 30 years from now for what? Egyptian democracy to generate Newt uh, Gingrich and Mitt Romney? Is that the model that we are, we are desperately trying to? No, there are alternative models that we are, we are thinking about. So Turkey, in many ways, is a model. 
uh, in many ways it can learn from uh, from the Arab Spring. Shall we take another round? Please, sir. The gentleman here, please. Thank you very much for a marvelous talk, and I don't think anybody could disagree with many of your, in fact, any whatever you said. Um, I want to rather put you on the spot. Uh, you have said, of course, that the war is already going, ongoing, in a sense, but uh, you haven't actually answered the question of whether a military invasion is imminent, and if so, when it's likely to happen, because we hear a lot about this, and that, I think, concerns a lot of people here. Thank you. Thanks. Any, any, yes. The young woman here, please. Thank you. I'm a journalist, a Persian journalist. You, meant, you suggested that this, um, instead of starting a war against you know, Iran or government is start, uh, starting to put pressure on Iran, it's better to start civil, like civil societies and start to uh, interact with Iranian <coughs> societies such as um, women's rights activists or um, that kind of groups. But the problem is at the moment the government, of Iranian government, putting, putting a lot of pressure on this kind of societies. But so there's no way for them to talk with foreigners or even interact with them via email, phone, or coming out of the country. So what's the alternative to that? Thanks. Any questions in the back, please? Please, y yes, it's over there. The last round, yeah. Sorry, time is. <laughs> yes, go ahead. next to you, please. Okay. <laughs> uh, to, to what extent, then, the whole one this point about US policy towards Iran, the point is, to what extent is it being driven by the pro Israel lobby in Washington? as opposed to your, what you call classic U.S. imperialism, which you think of in, in Latin America. The, the whole point is it's, it's very different from that classic, classic model. So. Thanks. The, question, the gentleman next to you, please, yes. Uh, hi, my name is Ankit. Um, uh, the, the thing I find curious about um, all the other actors in this sort of play is about can the, you, the... Please, next to, can you put it next to you, closer to you, please? Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, that's right. Um, sorry, my name is Ankit. Um, my question is about the Arab uh, sort of relation um, to all this. I remember during the WikiLeaks sort of uh, debacle hearing this quote apparently from a Saudi diplomat to the Americans about cutting off the head of the snake, which apparently was a reference to some sort of attack on Iran or, a bunch, or an assassination, which when I first heard that I was quite confused because I thought if there is a ground war uh, in Iran that is very, very bad for the whole of the Middle East, it will make Iraq look like Disney World. Thanks. But got the question. Yeah. Just, please. The gentleman here will kind of take two more questions, so because we, yes. Thank any you young much. students here? Any undergraduates <laughs> have questions? Please. Yeah. Thank you very much for your talk. My question is about. Uh, I wrote a dissertation Where are you? Your hand. on. I'm here. Oh. I wrote a dissertation about the role of uh, revolutionary guards in Iranian politics. So my question is, do you think that the military can take over power in Iran, power in Iran and become like a uh, military government just like Pakistan? Thank you. And the undergraduates, any questions from undergraduates here? Well, the undergraduates. Okay, please. It's all right. 
Hello. Okay. Um, my question actually, um, not, not something specific to Iran, but something which you touched upon very briefly. Uh, you talked about this issue of kind of privacy versus uh, invasiveness of governments. And I think this is something that's happening across the board and across the world. What do you think uh, would be the role of this kind of in maybe bringing forth some kind of paradigm shift in the, the emboldening of people, you know, people having kind of a similar attitude to, uh, to what you express? I don't care what the people read, you know, all the better that they read it versus the government which is actually becoming a lot more secretive and kind of almost, so it's almost like an emboldening of the people and a very kind good. of very good. you know people are the, the governments are now afraid very good what, what impact does that have across uh, the board can i uh, we'll take one more or two because i we any there are two please <coughs> trying to be as selfish as possible because we uh, there's a postscript to the question on the right here all right uh, to answer the exam question with the question mark, surely one has to say something about Israeli politics, uh, bearing in mind, of course, that many Israelis have said that for many years now that uh, Iran is an existential threat. You said there's an undergraduate? <laughs> <laughs> there's a gentleman behind you, please. That's the last question. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. Um, my question is, a movement like the Green Movement, where it is Speak uh, quite disparate and many different groups and people are involved in it. Uh, how can it avoid being almost hijacked or having its message uh, hijacked by one group claiming to be its spokesperson? And is it something that it should be concerned about? Uh, I didn't get the first part of your question. Um, it's just a reference to the structure of a movement like the Green Movement. Oh, okay. That it is quite spread out, disparate. Very good. Not and your, your question is how? And when it doesn't have one, uh, as you said, charismatic focus point, yeah, yeah, yeah. how can it avoid being hijacked by Very one group or excellent, another. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Excellent questions. Okay, these are all wonderful questions. Uh, let me uh, uh, start with the possibility of military strike. I think uh, whether or not there will be a military strike, my sense is that Obama will do all he can, at least in this year, not to have an all-out striking of, say, nuclear facilities uh, in Iran to delay it as much as possible. Much of the analysis, in fact, in the United States is that Israeli uh, warmongers, in fact, know this and are trying to pressure on him, pressure him uh, to uh, take a position and go for military strike. Right now, as you know, the Fifth Fleet is in the Persian Gulf area, and the Iranians are maneuvering in one way or another. They have threatened to close down the Strait of Hormuz. The condition is very volatile in the Persian Gulf. And not only a mistake can happen that triggers a war, as we know from history, a mistake can be manufactured. There are many people very much interested in a military confrontation. It's not uh, put past behind Israel to manufacture an incident. Or Saudi Arabia, for that matter, the reference to chopping the head of the snake in reference to, uh, to, to Iran. So the condition is very volatile, and it can actually lead to uh, a military uh, confrontation. But so far as we can analyze uh, from facts that we know, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely certain Khamenei will avoid any possibility of a military confrontation with the uh, United States, because they know they will lose. I mean, they can close down the Strait of Hormuz for a few days, but what, what, what after that? 
the, the military capacity of Iran is such that they can have a prolonged uh, war of attrition, sort of unconventional asymmetric warfare for uh, a period of time and uh, generate a crisis that they can sustain themselves. But we're talking about a population of 75 million human beings. That, that they cannot control. So it is not in the best interest of uh, Khamenei to engage in a war. And many of the analysis is that he didn't want the credit of negotiation with, uh, with the Americans go to Ahmadinejad, and he wanted for him to have uh, that credit if that is the credit to be attained. So, so far as the political apparatus is, my sense is that neither Obama nor Khamenei uh, are in, in their interest to enter a full-fledged war. But it doesn't mean that the existing sort of uh, uh, volatile and militarized and heavily uh, uh, invested in the region cannot accidentally lead uh, to a war. Uh, so the question about governmental repression and civil liberties again, I now forget uh, who asked the question, is absolutely correct. That is, the fact of the matter is that uh, Islamic Republic is very much apprehensive of these uh, civil society formations. And that they flourished under uh, Khatami and uh, Khatami's presidency for eight years, and they have been severe, severely curtailed in the aftermath of uh, Khatami. But my, my understanding is that these voluntary associations, they take shape. You cannot control 75 million human beings. And neither in terms of labor organizations nor, I mean, there has been consistent labor protests in Iran, not with political slogans, but with economic slogans, slogans that have to do with their, uh, with their uh, income being lower than, uh, than uh, the poverty line entirely professional and, and uh, labor-related, not political-related. Uh, Neither the, politi uh, the labor, nor women, nor a student, uh, uh, many student organizations now have gone underground after the repression. But it doesn't mean that they don't, they don't exist. They do exist. And uh, I mean, consider the, uh, the June uh, 2009, how those masses of hundreds of thousands poured into the streets of Tehran and Shiraz and Isfahan and Tabriz and so forth. Obviously, those were underground and now poured into the streets. So I don't think the, the, the repressive regime works uh, uh, as much as they want. Uh, now, to what extent pro-Israeli lobby is responsible for the position? A lot. But again, it would be false to assume the pro-Israeli lobby projects more power than it actually has. I'm, I'm, I'm a living example of well, they, they shortlist you, they blacklist you, they write book, the most dangerous professors, bada boom. What does that mean? They make you even more prominent than, uh, than uh, you know, a professor at the, at the university. They give you more space. So the projection of their power, their very power, they have their Congress under control, etc. It is not that that power doesn't exist, but the projection of it is more than the reality of it. And the fact is the pressure on President Obama to militaries, for a military strike has been tremendous. But he, had, he has withstood uh, the thing. I mean, he's the only, the, 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 uh, one of the few who dare to say, oh, the border has to be to a state solution, borders back to 67, uh, etc. So it is important to keep the power of pro-Israeli, APAC, etc. in mind, but not to exaggerate it. The, uh, uh, the situation is more... Uh, complicated. Um, 
then, oh, pri oh that, I love that question, the question of private and public uh, uh, space. That's tremendous. I mean, that is absolutely correct. At a certain point, uh, as I say about the case of the charge of being anti-Semite, the only people who are scared of being called anti-Semites are anti-Semites. If you are not anti-Semite, you couldn't care less. The only people who are afraid of all oh, my privacy, etc. I mean, you have something to hide. I, I don't have something to hide. I scream, oh, they monitor your, the, the NYPD, the New York Police Department was monitoring my university, student, faculty, etc. I said, we should examine this NYPD. We'll see how much they have learned about Islam because they have been taking free courses. <laughs> you follow, you know, free uh, Ivy League education, you know, for four years. Uh, we invite them, give them uh, donuts, they the love degree. donuts. <laughs> so, you know, the thing is, if you're not afraid, if you're not scared, and knock the wood, I have, over these many years, uh, I've never been questioned, asked anything about where you're going, where you're coming, you know, despite the fact that my name is Hamid, anybody with, with HMD in your name, you're immediate, uh, immediate suspect. The only time that, that somebody stopped me and said, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Where do you teach? Was an immigration officer who had a daughter who had applied to Colombia and <laughs> wanted to know. So yes, I agree that the, the relationship between public and private is becomes, again, this is the fear of occupying the public space, the magnificent, magnificent work of Hannah Arendt. You know, she takes the expression, uh, pursuit of happiness, pursuit of happiness in the, in the American Constitution, and she constructs an idea of public happiness, the last magnificent chapter of her book on revolution, public happiness. Public happiness is the possibility of public participation by citizens. I mean, she denounced American, she loved American democracy at the Jeffersonian point, but denounced it by, oh, you just go vote every four years and that's the end of your political participation because that wasn't supposed to, uh, supposed to be the case. So we trusting the public space, coming into the, systematically, not in the case of just a student uprising or looting uh, shops, uh, sort of uh, going on a, uh, a rampage in terms of, uh, uh, retail th therapy uh, uh, is, is, the, is the key point for you to trust and to occupy the public space. It was not until the, the occupation of Zuccotti Park that we realized the Zuccotti Park is actually a private space. You didn't have a right to be there. They could have kicked you out. That generated a legal discussion. What exactly is the public uh, space? How much can we, can we demand an exact in terms of the de definition of the public? But that wouldn't come if everything is privatized. I mean, uh, very generously, uh, Professor Jerjes talked about how we go out of our, our way to say something public. Because you see, the idea of Ameri private American university is that our minds have been privatized. We have been bought and paid for. Salary, retirement, children, medical insurance, uh, you know, the whole thing. So they will think you're mad if you go out in the streets, as I did just uh, last week, Th three-digit uh, temperature in front of UN, no sanctions on Iran, no war on Iran, because it's insane. Doesn't make sense if your mind is privatized. So, but the president of my university has a salary uh, of, a, of a CEO of a company, you follow? And uh, uh, with his salary, we can have three departments run in, in, in my university. 
But nevertheless, the thing is that that relationship that you just said, that now we, we can begin to eavesdrop on the government. I mean, look at those fantastic videos that came out in the aftermath of the WikiLeaks, and we saw the atrocities that the American military was doing. Otherwise, they were completely cleaning up the image. Not even the dead bodies of American soldiers were allowed. Forget about uh, civilian casualties in, in, uh, in Iraq. So the relationship has been, uh, has been reversed, and it's a good sign. Oh, existential threat. Uh, unless and until there is a just uh, resolution of the Palestinian uh, issue, there will always be existential threat to Israel. Always. If it's not by Iran, it's by uh, Syria. If it's not by Syria, it's by Egypt. If it's not by Egypt, it's by uh, Palestinians. The most existential threat to Israel is our Palestinians. You just can't shove people around for so many decades and get away with it. They think that since Americans got away with it with the Native Americans, they, should, they could also get away with it with, with Palestinians. But Palestinians for 60 years have been fighting. It not, has nothing to do with their champions, with their Mahmoud Darwish and uh, Edward Said and Ghassan uh, Kanafani, uh, etc. It has to do with the will of the people who just refuse to let go of their homeland in the bright daylight of history. Village after village. Olive tree after olive tree. You can, just can't go. So the most existential threat to, to Israel is this, I, I know whether you're for two-state solution or for, like me, one-state solution, is entirely uh, a different issue. I mean, people can have different, uh, different opinions. But the thing is that unless and until you address that fundamental issue and constantly create diversionary tactics, oh, Iran is an existential threat to me. In 280 years, Iran has not invaded anything. The last time they did, which did the horrible thing, was India during Nader Shah. This uh, 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 doesn't mean that the Iranian government's God's gift to humanity is a horrid theocracy. Like an abusive father can just slap around uh, uh, his own children. But uh, we have to put the, the issues separately. Israel is capable of wiping Iran off the map because of its nuclear capabilities. But what has Israel been really able to do with its nuclear capabilities? They say it's a psychological assurance. Psycholo ask an Israeli mother whose child has been killed in a, in a suicidal violence. Suppose there is a march from Tahrir Square through Rafah towards Jerusalem. What is Israel going to do with those uh, nuclear warfares? Their ghastly, deadly uh, weapons has absolutely no use. Regional disarmament is the only solution that any sane person would tell you. Beginning with dismantling of all of these horrid weapons of mass destruction of the United States itself. I mean, we are civilians. We are at the mercy of these horrid weapons. What do, why should, when the, uh, when the uh, US-led, NATO-led invasion of Libya began, you know, part of public conversations in newspapers, etc., now, suddenly, the, the reporter asks you, suppose President Obama is on the line asking you what to do about Libya. Now, we have been generated, oh, Libya, Muammar Gaddafi is going to have a mass uh, execution of all these uh, Libyans, so you are put on the spot. If you say no military strike, then you are for Gaddafi. If you say for military strike, then you are siding with, uh, with militarism. My answer was and remains very simple. Was I a party to the decision when Obama was selling masses of millions of dollars of weaponry to uh, Gaddafi? 
with all my respect, due respect to my colleagues in LSE, was I recipient of hundreds of thousands of dollars to write article that Libya is the Norway of? Why, why should I now be put in a spot? Or am I for or against the thing? I said, no, the shoes are in the other foot. If he attacks, I call him imperialist. If he doesn't attack, I hold him responsible for having sold arms to uh, Gaddafi. We are ordinary citizens. We are not in a position of political. If he were to listen to me, I voted for him. Now I regret it. I mean, twice I voted, once for, for Khatami, once for him, and I regret both of them. <laughs> The only vote I don't regret is for Musavi because he never became president. <laughs> we have one more question, yeah? No, I think I answered it. Crisis. It's essential threat, yeah. Thank you, by the way. Please join me in thanking Professor Dabaji for a great Please.